This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Patrick Rohner from the McCann Group, where we discussed their recent study, Your Toughest Audience Connecting with You and discuss the characteristics of the millennials today and how they are interacting via different social platforms across Asia. Hi Patrick. Hi Bernard. How are you doing? It's a bit early in the morning, but otherwise I am very well. And how are I, you doing? I'm well and I'm on the other side of the world. I'm 15 hours behind your time and I really appreciate that you wake up so early. I think it's 30 a.m. in the morning in Singapore and while I'm in San Francisco now at 3.30 in the afternoon. And who am I talking to? I'm talking to Patrick Rohner, Chief Digital Officer, Asia Pacific, McCann World Group. And the, the reason why Patrick is here today is to talk to us about millennials in Asia. But before I do that, I want to get to know Patrick better. How do you get started in your career in marketing and eventually lead to your current role? That's a great question, Bernard. Actually, this is my third career, if you will. I actually started doing private equity when I finished grad school in Washington, D.C. So I spent several years traveling through Latin America, helping build what became Latin America's first transnational mobile network. I was buying small cellular and radio paging companies across the region and then building the marketing plans behind those to guarantee and justify the valuation that we were putting on them uh, at purchase. That was really the beginning of my both my marketing career, but also my international career. And I've never stopped traveling since. So it's been, it's been fascinating. I then moved on when my then boss sold the company to a larger private equity firm. I took a year out. I went to live in Costa Rica under the guise of learning Spanish and, and had a great time there. And I came back to New York in 95 and this thing called the internet was, was kind of booming, just starting really. And I ended up working for a small technology company. The founder, or one of the founders I should say, was the lead architect at Oracle who developed the first web server product for Oracle. This was back in probably 94, 95. And so we were the, one of the first companies that were plugging databases into the back end of websites, which is where I kind of got my foundation. And then from there, I moved into the creative agency side and have just continued to move both forward in my career and also move across multiple locations and geographies. And you're currently based in Singapore, but your footprint is actually Asia Pacific. That's right. Yeah. So I, I'm based in Singapore. I, I, I pay my mortgage here in Singapore, but I spend excuse me, the vast majority of my time traveling around mm. Asia Pacific. My role really is to help McCann World Group continue to expand and evolve and grow its digital capabilities across the entire group. So that ranges from McCann, Ericsson, the advertising agency, to MRM McCann, our digital CRM and data agency to Weber Shanwick, our PR, Momentum, Experiential, and Shopper Marketing, uh, etc. So it's, a, it's an exciting role, one that I love, particularly here in Asia, which is such a, a dynamic, vastly different market than or region than, than what I've worked in before. I guess you have changed your career, three career transitions. What are the interesting career lessons that you can share with our audience then? I think number one is 
to always learn. We're always going to make mistakes in life. We're going to make mistakes in our career. Number one, I, I don't believe in regrets. I always believe in taking a lesson learned. And I think whether you're, it's for your career or you're just your life, I, I think it's really important to always be learning and making sure that you take the lessons that your career provides you. I think that's number one. Number two, I think you have to really appreciate, particularly in the world of digital, you have to always understand what the motivation is for pursuing a digital agenda. Having worked with large multinational advertising agencies for the better part of the last 10 years, first at Ogilvy and then at DDB and now at McCann, Many of our clients are very traditional marketeers, and they have very different agendas for why they pursue a digital platform or a digital marketing agenda. And for me, the companies that are most successful are those who look at digital as a tool of offense versus a tool of defense. And what I mean by that is some clients want to protect the way they've always done business. They almost want to protect themselves from disruption. Other clients use the digital agenda as a more offensive weapon to almost disrupt themselves, to look for new business and marketing opportunities, new ways to connect with communities and audiences, and actually indeed looking for new audiences themselves. And finally, they'll use it as a way to actually help fuel their product and service innovation. And I think the third lesson for me, and I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I've lived and worked in North America, in Latin America. Prior to moving to Asia, I was based in London for 11 years where I had a, a few both regional and global jobs. And now here in, in Asia is travel the world, experience everything that you can and take advantage of it because the world is getting smaller and smaller. We've just seen it in the last week with Brexit, the impact of, of a relatively small country in Europe making a vote that has impacts and ramifications around the world. So get out and learn and take the opportunity to travel and experience as many different cultures and business and marketing environments as you possibly can. I can feel the impact of Brexit actually even reaches the shores of Singapore through just hearing what you say. And I think I'm also having the same kind of conversations because I lived in the UK for many years as well. But today, which comes to the main topic of the day, and I spoke to Charles Anderson who came on my show and I wanted to get a sense of what does the millennials think and what is their digital habits. And he referred you to me. We went to discuss a report that recently was published by the McCann World Group on your toughest audience connecting with youth. It's a study that's done on millennials, but I think what we're going to do is to focus a little bit in the Asia-Pacific side. Specifically, just to kickstart it, how was the research actually conducted and how does it work? Okay, so we're very lucky at McCann World Group. We have this central intelligence unit, if you will, called Truth Central. Truth Central is headquartered in New York, where indeed our global headquarters are, but we've got teams around the world. And their job is to do primary research on topics that we feel are the most interesting and topics that provide both big opportunities and indeed big challenges to many of our top clients. So this group publishes 
anywhere from three to five major research results and papers each year. And the most recent one that we did is a study called The Global Truth About Youth, which is actually a refresh a refresh of a, a study we did a few years ago. So it's a combination of surveys and face-to-face -face interviews. So it's, a, it's a combination of quantitative and qualitative research. This particular study involved 33,000 plus interviews across 32 markets and 120 focus groups. So for Asia Pacific in particular, the research included Japan, Korea, China, India, Hong Kong, Philippines, Australia, Thailand. And it covers the 16 to 30 year group. But this particular topic that we're going to talk about today is our 16 to 20 year old group, which we, we broadly call Generation Z or Z if you're in the UK. It always baffles me when we talk about youth, who are we talking about? Yeah, so that's a great question. For, for us, you know, millennials who are often referred to as Gen Y, these are people typically born between 1982 and 1997. There are many different definitions. Again, for this particular study, or this excerpt of the study, I should say, we're talking about people born after 1997. And the reason we're focusing on these groups, if you think about our client list, We've got Nestle, we have Mondelez, we have a variety of clients who market to youth. A lot of debate and a lot of head-scratching among marketeers in the world about how to reach this group. You know, again, I've come out of the advertising world. So in the old days, we'd create a TVC. We would put it on air, typically one of four major national stations or five stations. We would gain some awareness. People would vaguely remember that ad when they walked into the shop and they might buy the product. But millennials as a group and Gen Z within that group are behaving vastly different. Their media consumption, their attitudes, and their, their motivations are vastly different than anything we've seen before. That comes to another question then. What are the characteristics of youth today which are similar and yet different from yesterday? Interesting. So I think let's start with the similarities. So you know, I'll start off, I'll fully admit that I have two boys. This is both an interesting topic as a professional, but also a very personal one because I'm now starting to see some of this behavior in my older boy who's, uh, who recently turned 13. So you ask, what's similar? You know, if you think about, you know, if you take yourself back to when you were a teenager, kids today still worry a lot about what other people think about them. They're still forming their own identities in their minds, and they, and they worry about that. Right? So that hasn't changed. They certainly obsess about how they look and whether or not they're attractive. They're figuring out their sexuality. They're figuring out what they like, what they're attracted to, what they're not attracted to. And they're worried about being attractive and what they look like. And certainly, they worry about their schoolwork and exams. And that still holds true today. Uh, that, that's a fundamental, I suppose, that hasn't changed. But there are lots of things that have changed, which is where both it's exciting, both as a professional, but scary as a parent. According to our research, 25% of our young people today have either received or sent a nude photo or what's called a sext 
25%, and that's scary to me. And the number's probably even greater because those are just the people who have admitted it. Another thing that's changed is when you ask, I don't know, when, when I was asked what I wanted to be when I was 15 or 16, 17 years old, I wanted to be a doctor. That was my main ambition when I was 16 or 17. You know, other friends wanted to be a lawyer or international business person or an accountant or whatever it was. But today, there's a viable career option called live streaming. So you've got the so-called prom queen of Instagram, Lily uh, Heimowitz in, in the U.S., whose who's career is to live stream. And there are youth today on YouTube who are making hundreds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars just by streaming content in both in YouTube or Facebook Live or Periscope or Twitch or whatever it is. And, and that's kind of fascinating. So their, their, their view of, of, of what they can do with their, with their lives in terms of professional careers dramatically changed. Another thing that's changed uh, is, I, I don't know about you, but I don't remember an evening where I forced myself to go out when I really didn't want to. I may go out because I made a commitment to a friend or a colleague or a client and I didn't really feel like it, but I certainly never went out simply because I wanted to take a photo of myself and post it in my social network. And kids today are, are, are doing that, which is interesting. So, you know, again, a few things haven't changed, but lots have changed. And do you think part of it is actually also due to because they have access to the mobile smartphone that's like a pocket computer? Yeah, absolutely. They don't, it's interesting. There's a, a term that we talk about a lot in marketing, and I suppose it's beyond marketing, the digital native. But the reality is kids today are not digital natives, they're access natives, which is fundamental. They're not worried about digital. For them, digital is like electricity or air. They don't know a time, they don't know a world where you couldn't instantly get any piece of information you were looking for or indeed instantly post a picture of yourself wherever you are or a video or make a comment. And so they're very access junkies. So what are interesting observations made on youth as a whole then? Well, it's, let's get into it. We talk about, you know, I think the, the, the interesting observation is, or I guess one of the outtakes is we're starting to look at this group as a super species. And what does that mean? Super species, if you're an evolutionary biologist, are a species that diverged from one another in isolation rather recently and have remained largely or entirely geographically separated. So super species represent a snapshot, if you will, of adaptation, of evolution caught in the act. Right? And while Youth today certainly live in the same homes. They, they walk the streets, they get on buses, they get on the MRT. They indeed in the digital world are vastly different. They live in a world that, that certainly very few of us live in actively every day. That's really interesting to us. You know, in terms of kind of where they, they grew up in a land called the internet. We may think that we live online, but our corner of the internet is not their corner of the internet. And it's really skewing their behavior in fascinating ways. And when I say internet, you can think of the mobile internet because there are two things are the same thing. Almost everything young people today are 
they're doing via their phones, as we talked about a moment ago. Do you find that part of that is because, for example, when Facebook was hot, they go to Facebook and then suddenly the parents come in and then they disappear from Facebook and move to Twitter and then now they move to Snapchat? Uh, absolutely. That is certainly one of the main motivations for kids. We'll kind of get into it in, in a bit about about the different behaviors, but mm. certainly one of the motivations for constantly seeking new... Number one, they just like to play and experiment and there's a certain cachet or almost street credibility for finding the newest, coolest platform. Right. So that's that's one. But indeed, because our their parents aren't there, because I'm not there. You know, I may be on Snapchat, but I'm not actively using it every day the way some of the kids are. Right. So they are there because because parents aren't there. So I guess with the mobile smartphones, how does the youth actually utilize them? I mean, the way maybe we talk about is a very conventional behavior, like yeah. making voice calls, sending texts, and even like having some of these things that you observed in them. Yeah. Well, so the first off, I don't know how many, what, what kind of mobile plan you have, Bernard. I, I certainly base my mobile plan on the number of minutes that I expect to, to talk each month. Right. Teenagers today don't use the phone to talk. Full stop. They are indeed among the lowest percentage of age groups who use the phone to talk. Right? Less than 3% of this age group of 16 to 20 list talking on the phone as the main thing they do on their phone. That may, may or may not be a surprise. But of course, the opposite of that or the corollary of that is when you ask them how many texts they send a day, they exponentially over-index against every other age group. So texting is huge. And of course, access to the internet, the use of, of smartphones is heavily over-indexing here. They, they would rather, they, they'll give up virtually anything to ensure that they have access to the internet through their phone. And in fact, oddly, we asked them, of people aged 16 to 22, 53% would rather give up their sense of smell than their personal technology. Wow. Okay. That's heavy. And, you know, we did, we did a, an interesting exercise. So we asked these kids to, if they could find a visual that represented their view of the world, and they created a, a Tumblr group for these research. And the fascinating thing, and that we talked about a minute ago, access natives. You know, the images that these kids were putting up were absolutely extraordinary. Everything from internet or water from the Philippines, so much internet, so little time from Chile. There's a very funny, uh, funny image uh, from Brazil of the amount spent between going to the bathroom, spending time online, access and a power cord. It equals infinity. It, it, it's really interesting in, in how they view the world. So they're absolutely addicted to this access and they're doing it through their mobile phones. So how does the older and younger millennials split between real persona and their social persona yeah. then? For me, this is probably the most interesting outtake of the research. Older millennials and indeed anyone born before 1997, they form their identities, their, their real me identities, and they form that based on the interactions they have in the real world. Interactions at school, interactions amongst their friends and peer group, interactions with friends and family at home. And then they use that persona and they start projecting that persona through social media. 
what I find fascinating and indeed a little scary is the younger millennials and the Generation Z, they actually think first about their social persona. They want to identify what kind of person they want to project themselves to be through social media and then live up to that projection in the real world. So indeed, their social me actually starts to define their real me, which is interesting. And so, you know, as an example, some young people in our research describe meeting someone in real life that they liked or were attracted to, and then going home or literally getting on their phones and checking out their social media accounts and deciding that they didn't really like them that much after all. This image of how they project themselves that is really interesting and scary. I want to ask a follow-up question regarding this, but specifically in Asia, does cultural nuances play a part in their real persona and social persona, or is it just a very general trait that you could see, whether it's in the US, UK, or even in Asia, is the same? Yeah, it's interesting. To, to us, I don't, in this particular area, I don't see a lot of difference from one country to the next, one region to the next. I think, I, I think this is a fundamental part of growing up no matter where you are. You, you may, some markets or some countries, some cultures may have more emphasis on education than others. They might have more emphasis on sports or other forms of achievement, but fundamentally, as kids are forming their identities, we're seeing social media and the access to social media every minute of every day having profound impacts on how they think about forming their own identities. And again, it's almost this social me is the first lead to who they want to become in the real world. I wanted to ask about the rules of for the youth how do they yeah. getting into yeah. social media? I mean, in Asia, you have a lot of very interesting examples, even with traditional Western digital platforms, for example, is yeah. Instagram, Periscope, Snapchat. I also want to extend a little bit to talk a little bit about Line and WeChat, if we can talk about that too. Yeah, of course. We asked a group of 15, 16-year-old kids. We gave them seven minutes to write down all of the unwritten rules for how to be cool on social media. And in seven minutes, they came up with 33 rules. And again, that was incredibly illuminating and insightful, but it also starts betraying or just revealing the intense pressure that kids live under today. So there are rules in the real world for their behavior. Parents and friends and teachers are constantly monitoring them. And at the same time, there are even more rules about how to behave and how to be cool in social media. So again, there, there, there are 33 of them. You know, if you look at some of the more interesting ones, I'm not going to kind of go through all 33, but you know, things like don't look like you're trying too hard. Look like you're having fun. Look like you're popular like you have friends and stuff. You know, don't do quotes and cheesy stuff. It really betrays a lot of, of pressure that these kids are, are, are facing. You know, another kind of really interesting one is about don't over-edit your pictures. There was a trend for many years about these perfect images that millennials were posting of cool, interesting things that they were doing. But in fact, they were very artificial. Right? What you didn't see, what was happening outside of the camera frame. Kids today reject these images of perfection because they don't believe them and they believe they're, they're fake. And indeed, we'll, we'll come to this towards the end of the conversation, marketeers and advertisers really need to think about that. This notion that this 
false perception of perfection. Right? They don't mind being highly creative and over-editing. So if anyone that follows, say, Miley Cyrus on Instagram, right, her, her, many of the images that she posts are so over-edited to be funny or cool, not just to portray this image of, of perfection. And so in many ways, we're entering almost what we call a post-authentic world. Anything goes as long as you're transparent about what you're doing. That's really interesting. So we'll talk about some of the other platforms. So, you know, when it comes to representing lives, Generation Z is buying into more of a raw, unedited stream of consciousness, right? Which is why they're live streaming and, and they're finding serious audiences. This is why platforms like Twitch or, or Periscope or YouNow or indeed Facebook Live are becoming so popular. And if you look at, if I were to predict where some of the platforms you just talked about, Line, in fact, Line already has it, or WeChat, the introduction of live streaming functions, I, I think, is the fastest growing area for those platforms in particular. Another interesting development. So kids around the world use Instagram. What we found out, and I, I didn't know this, is that there's something called Finstagram. Do you, do you know what Finstagram is, Bernard? I don't know. I, I already heard it because I read your report. <laughs> <laughs> so Finstagram is fake Instagram. So kids today are setting up two accounts. They have their real Instagram, or I should say their primary Instagram account, where they are projecting this image of themselves that they want their broad audience to view. And then they have what they call their fake Instagram, which is the raw, unedited, real persona. And what's interesting there is their fake Instagram is actually portraying who they really are, while their quote-unquote real Instagram projects the image of who they want to project themselves to be to the rest of the world, which is which is fascinating. And then, of course, there's Snapchat. And we've talked a lot about, there's been a lot of discussion around pros and cons of Snapchat. Virtually every marketeer, every client that I talk to across the region is asking us what they should be doing in Snapchat, should they be embracing it. And for me, there are a couple of things about Snapchat that we uncovered that are interesting. Number one, because it it's ephemeral because it disappears in a, in a very short period of time. Kids feel more comfortable portraying themselves and putting images up there that they know aren't going to be there indefinitely. But they are also highly creative. Right? It feels raw, but they're putting really creative images up there. And Snapchat allows you to be very playful. And the other thing that I find interesting is that we talk a lot about the day in the life of a particular person or a target audience. Snapchat is a fascinating way to tell a kid's story in 24 hours. And if you're, if you're watching closely enough, you can really see fascinating things that that kids are doing that reveal a bit of the, uh, about really who they are and what they're doing. Because it is more raw, it is more creative, and as you alluded to before, parents aren't on there yet in any big, big way. I, I thought I should share a little anecdote. My brother-in-law, who is also a millennial, I actually walked up to him one day and asked him, can you teach me how to use Snapchat? And he was just trying to show me just by doing a very quick video. And then he was able to post it very quickly, just him sharing some some lesson or some idea with his friends and then he just basically projects out. It's, it's very raw, very quick and very fast. Is that how Asian youths are looking in terms of Snapchat or even with other form of live streaming apps that's going on, whether in China or other yeah. parts of the world? 
Well, so if you if you look at the whole kind of ecosystem of social platforms, we're kind of seeing two dynamics in, in Asia. If you think about your x-axis, right, the horizontal axis, on the left side will be the journey. Okay, so platforms that ena- enable kids to to talk about their journey through through life, through school, through friendships, through family. And then there's the very present moment. So what am I doing just this second? What am I doing right now? And the other axes, I should say, the y-axis, the the vertical, at the top you have raw, right? This really unedited, kind of really raw vision of what's happening. And at the bottom, you'll have this polished view, right? And we've started plotting the different social platforms. So, you know, here in Asia, we've got things like QQ and Line, well, obviously WeChat and WhatsApp, etc., right? So, if you look at Line, Line is very much it, it's it's highly polished because you're using emoticons and emojis, so they're they're already kind of well-defined and it's more about the present. How are you feeling now? It's more about a conversation and dialogue in the moment. QQ, for instance, is moving more back towards the journey. And it's a little bit more raw. And then, of course, you get to the most raw and the most present. Things like Snapchat, Twitch, you now are highly kind of raw and in the moment. Given that most youth are using all these new tools to get themselves present on social media, what are the kind of best practices? I think you alluded to earlier that the way how brands should approach them has needs to take a different kind of twist. So what would yeah. be the best practices for brands to actually engage the youth then? So I think, you know, f- there, there, there are a couple of rules. Number one, don't generalize a generation. Millennials are perhaps the most scrutinized and labeled generation in marketing history, you know, the, the tons of terms that are thrown out there, immature, slacktivists, multicultural, selfish, lazy, entitled, special, D- don't generalize. And it's particularly with the Gen Z, right? They're extremely dynamic and, and we have to observe and really watch what, what they're doing before we formulate any kind of strategic direction about how to connect and engage with them. So really take your time and do your research. Uh, don't generalize and certainly don't make assumptions. So that would be the first rule, I should say. Uh, and the second rule is to focus on their audience, not your audience. So again, as a, as a marketeer, as a brand, brands are always thinking about and dissecting their audiences. Every brief that we write or get from a client has a section about who is the target audience or audiences for this particular product or service or campaign. And we generalize them and we have these broad descriptions of who these audiences are. But what's really important for these guys is their audience. Right? And so as a marketeer, given what we talked about before, how kids today are actually defining themselves in terms of who their social persona is driving their real persona. Indeed, as marketeers, we need to think about the content that we produce, not in terms of reaching them, 
but whether or not those kids will use that content to project outwards to their audience. Uh, and that's a fundamental shift in the way brands uh, and companies need to think about marketing and indeed producing content. So they have to be basically be very authentic and think from the perspective of the youths rather than from themselves to project the brand down. Exactly. They need to be, again, we talked about this, but they need to be transparent and they need not necessarily raw, but if you project a highly polished image of your, of your brand, a very rigid perception of your brand or indeed your products, uh, you're going to turn people off. Have you seen any interesting examples in Asia? It's a great question. Trying to, to think now. I mean, the, I, you know, again, we work with big companies. I, I think one of the more interesting campaigns I've seen recently is a piece of work that we did for Hershey's, the chocolate brand in, in the Philippines. And we created these, this thing called the Happy Gram, which, which I absolutely love. And that was the idea there is that by kind of tapping into the prevailing emotions on Facebook at the time. Hershey's, we, we inserted just a happy message because Hershey's, the brand has always been about delivering a little moment of happiness, whatever you consume it. And so they take that in the virtual world and, and using a dynamic and indeed programmatic both media engine and creative engine, we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of different messages that we can deliver real time based on the emotion at the time. So, that, so that's one. Uh, and for me, you know, going back a few years, probably the most interesting campaign that I saw came out of China, and it was the People's Car Project for Volkswagen, where we asked Chinese youth to design their their car of the future and got them involved in the design. In fact, we actually brought them into the product innovation lab in China for Volkswagen and actually built prototypes of these cars. And I think that's interesting. So it's and then I think the final, the final thing, depending where you are, and actually, let me let me step back. Uh, I think another thing we haven't really talked about is how dramatically different each market is. So when we talk about Asia, we have to be very careful that we're not, again, overgeneralizing. You know, whether you're in Japan or you're in Indonesia or you're in China or Singapore or or India. The, the, the motivate the cultural drivers of behavior are, are dramatically different. And that indeed then impacts the types of campaigns that are going to succeed there. So Patrick, thank you so, so much for talking about giving us the insights on the youth in Asia through this podcast. So help my audience then, how do they find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Patrick Rona. Uh, you'll find me as Chief Digital Officer. I tend to post most of my comments about my views on the professional world through uh, through LinkedIn. And then I use that to to then post through to, to Twitter. I'm not a, I have to admit, I admit I'm not a huge user of Twitter. So I think the most, the, the best way to, to find me is Patrick Rona uh, on, at LinkedIn. You can find me at blungcw or at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play. And of course, always drop us a review and give us a recommendation on Overcast. And once again, Patrick, thank you so much for coming up so early. And it's a great conversation to have with you. Uh, Bernard, thanks for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, perhaps I'll be back another time talking about something else. But have a great day and enjoy, uh, enjoy San Francisco.